I'm Forrest Brown, and you're listening to Stories for Earth. Welcome to Stories for Earth, a podcast about everything climate change and pop culture. Today, I've got an interview to share with Cheryl Gray Bostrom, the author of a new novel titled Sugar Birds. Sugar Birds tells the story of a young girl named Aggie, who's on the run from her troubles after lighting a terrible fire at her family's home in the Pacific Northwest. I had the pleasure of talking to Cheryl about her new novel, which has now won at least three awards, including winner of the 2021 American Fiction Awards in Literary Fiction, General Fiction, and Cross-Genre Fiction categories, a silver medalist in the 2021 Reader's Favorite Awards in Inspirational Fiction, and a fiction finalist in the upcoming 2022 Christianity Today Book Awards. If you want to read the book for yourself, you can support the show by using the bookshop.org link in the show notes to purchase a copy. Now, without any further ado, here is my interview with Cheryl Gray Bostrom. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Cheryl, thank you for coming on the Stories for Earth podcast. It's great to have you with us. Um, I was wondering if you would just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Hi, Forrest. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, well, I was, I, I'm a lifelong Washington resident. I was raised on the Olympic Peninsula, which um, far northwest Washington, mm-hmm. and come from a family on my mother's side of Alaska and Washington pioneers. So we've lived oh, wow. here forever. And then on my yeah. day, on my dad's side, um, he was a kid raised in um, in Oklahoma, whose parents in mm. the Dust Bowl ended up selling their mules and and uh, heading out Route 66 in jalopies oh, to, okay. to work the crops <laughs> up. Cool. So, <laughs> so it's wow. a real convergence of experience. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and could you just tell me a little bit about yourself as a writer? How did you become a writer? You know, I've written since since I could hold since I could hold a pen. But I I taught um, I taught high school mm-hmm. English for a number of years, and then simultaneously was was uh, writing poetry and short form nonfiction. And then uh, once I got mm-hmm. older, okay. I realized that uh, the thing that had terrified me, which was writing fiction, was something that I wanted to do. So I just learned everything I could and, <laughs> and proceeded. Oh, great! That's awesome. Um, so what inspired you to write this story? Uh, we're talking about your novel, Sugar Birds. Um, would you just mind telling us a little bit about it? No, it's good. So when I started, actually, I, when I turned 60, I decided that if I didn't learn fiction now, I was never going to learn it. So, <laughs> so, um, and I had one, I had one granddaughter at that time and, mm-hmm. and wanted to give her an opportunity to experience the, the natural world that was really important to me. And also to just mm-hmm. to share with her my perspective on how to care for the earth and, okay. and, uh, how to how to interact with it, and then also to recognize mm-hmm. what I see as the character of God in the natural world. And mm-hmm. so okay. um, I was in a writing I was in a writing group, and I had um, some writing prompts, and those included mm-hmm. the ones that I chose were a fire and a young girl. And mm-hmm. so I wrote a sketch about that, and was encouraged by other people in my group to. To continue with the story, and they were writing me privately about it, and they wanted to know what happened to this girl. So, oh, wow. so I dedicated this book to my first granddaughter Gwen, and um, and it was really quite a motivator for me to finish mm-hmm. the manuscript because it was hard. Yeah, I bet. 
so I've seen you described as a naturalist. Uh, is that uh, something that you identify with as well? And what does that mean to you? So, you know, I do uh, because it's my passion and it's my lifelong mm-hmm. love. And I've been raised in country where interaction with the natural world was uh, front and foremost. I'm outside every day. I'm also a photographer, and I spend a lot of oh, time cool. watching and interpreting the natural world. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm married to a, a veterinarian who is an embryologist. Oh, nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then cool. sur- and then surrounded by friends and family who are scientists and who. Mm-hmm who, um, you know, it's just front and foremost in our discussion and yeah. spending a lot of time there. Nice. How did that influence your story that you were telling with Sugar Birds? Sugar Birds has the natural world really almost as one of the characters in the story. Okay, cool. And um, do you want a little synopsis? Oh, yeah, please. That would be wonderful. Sure. Okay, so uh, the story opens with... Um, with a, a girl named Agate who's, who's wrestling with her mom's advancing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, her mom's advancing mental illness. She's showing mm. signs of bipolar, manic depressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. And this girl, um, in her sadness, her dad, who's an arborist and who worked for the Alaska Forest Service, uh, mm-hmm. has taught her to interpret um, and to cope with her sadness through sketching nests and bird nests Mm. and so she does a lot she does a lot of tree climbing but um but she accidentally lights a fire that burns down her family's home and she thinks Mm. she's killed her parents and so she flees from the people who are searching for her and Mm. hides in a pacific northwest forest for a month and and so there are two narratives in the story but in her narrative she's grappling with survival and just asking an awful lot of questions which we can talk about but Sure. That's it in a nutshell. So everybody's looking for her. They want <laughs> mm-hmm. to bring her home. And she believes that they hate her because of what she's done by setting this fire. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And in doing that, she, um, in doing that, her, her whole worldview gets skewed. But she, mm. everybody who's trying to bring her home is vulnerable to both emotional, spiritual, physical wilderness. And so mm-hmm. that the natural world's huge in that, of course. Yeah. Interesting. So you said it's told from uh, two perspectives, and the first one is Agate. Who's the second perspective? Uh, the second one is a 16-year-old girl uh, named Celia, who's, whose dad is an oil exploration biologist, and in an attempt, he has to, he has to head to South America mm. on a job, and so he wants to get her out of Houston, where they live, because of uh, a friend that she has that's been uh, sending her in the wrong direction. And so he tricks her into coming up to spend time with oh, okay. her, with her uh, biologist grandmother. And oh. <laughs> she, she's, she's pretty angry. Her grandmother is a, is a wildlife rehabilitation um, specialist, and they rescue and rehabilitate raptors largely. And so Celia's mm-hmm. very engaged with that. Interesting. Okay. And I also wanted to go back. I, I know you were mentioning when you were talking about the characters originally, um, you used the word wilderness when you were describing what they're going through. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, first is the physical wilderness. And because mm-hmm. the story takes place on the, a lot of it is along the banks of this riparian zone um, okay. that butts up to farmland. Some, mm-hmm. of it, some of it takes place in the foothills, which is wilder country. 
Mm-hmm. But the land is still wild. The food chain is completely intact, although there's mm-hmm. been encroachment into that with these farms butting up against it. It has this mm-hmm. life-giving river flowing through the through the um, the heart of these old growth and and younger growth trees that are along this mm-hmm. along this forest. So that's the physical wilderness. And then the emotional wilderness is that these girls, because of things that have happened to them through failures of the adults in their lives, are really in these mm-hmm. places of emotional wilderness too. They don't know who they can trust. They don't know what to believe. They, mm-hmm. they don't trust themselves. They're in these broken places. And then in, spir- you know, and then in spiritual wilderness, um, Aggie, when she's in the woods and she's experienced this tremendous trauma, um, Mm-hmm. has to ask herself, you know, this God that my dad has taught me about really doesn't seem to, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I believe I'm abandoned. And so she's, she's yeah. in, an, in a spiritual wilderness too. Interesting. Okay. I see. Um, so I guess talking about the sort of trauma that Aggie goes through, I guess you're referencing, of course, her accidentally burning down her family's house and believing that she killed her parents, which would be traumatic for anybody. Um, yeah, specifically talking about, I guess, the burning aspect of that one. I was reading about this, um, I guess it's probably just because I spend a lot of time reading about climate change, but, um, I was just thinking of, like, the house burning down and how so many climate activists, you know, use, I guess, the kind of saying, like, our house is on fire as a rallying cry for climate action. Um, did that cross your mind at all while you were writing this? Or, I don't know, would you mind talking about that a little bit? I think that's just you know it dovetails with with what I've written here. I didn't <laughs> I didn't consider it that at the time, but uh, but I did place a fire in this story because it was mm-hmm. a, it was an illustration of the sort of life ravaging trauma that we can experience in life, and of course mm-hmm. climate change and what's happening to our natural world is is terrifying and devastating to so many and it is like our house burning down Mm -hmm. and so yeah so it it dovetails with that you know it's (laughs) it's illustrative of you know the fire is illustrative of of all human suffering and Mm -hmm. and of circumstances that are beyond our control that that change everything Mm -hmm. interesting and then also i was wondering i know you said that um nature is almost like another character in this story and and whenever i'm reading books that either i'm just reading for pleasure or that i want to talk about on the podcast um a big thing that i look for is how the other characters respond to i guess that nature character um you know sometimes that's in the form of wonder like the main characters just marveling at how beautiful the natural world is sometimes it's like practical adaptation strategies that they're using to adapt to climate change. Um, I was just wondering in this book, um, what kind of impact does nature have on uh, characters like Aggie and Celia and how do they respond to that? That's a good question. Um, Aggie, of course, ultimately finds hope in, um, especially in birds. And as she sketches these nests Mm. and she sees Mm-hmm. The variety of circumstances that these animals have to have to deal with, but to watch to watch an egg turn mm-hmm. into a bird and fly in nineteen days is yeah. is very hope giving and life giving 
to her. I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, and uh, for Celia, who's working with, you know, with these injured birds who've been scorched on transformers or who've been shot by oh, okay. shot by kids or who've mm-hmm. been hit by vehicles, you know, her, her heart's in a real different place, but she feels uh, empowered because her grandmother's taught her how to do this, and she also feels mm-hmm. a real commitment to helping these you know, to helping the, these birds in particular. Um, mm-hmm. Bur- Burnaby, who's um, who's a secondary character, but but really a very powerful one in the story, is an autistic mm-hmm. savant. And as he yeah. experiences death of birds through his uncle shooting all these starlings or through mm-hmm. through birds that, uh, that the grandmother, Mender, is unable to save, he... Mm-hmm he takes it on himself to try to resurrect these birds. And so he strips their bones and he wires them back together. And then he paints them in life, uh, in life circumstances that would, uh, have their, mm-hmm. have their life restored. And, and so he, through interesting, his artistic efforts is attempting to bring some restoration, yeah. you know? So, yeah. And then of course, Mender, the grandmother, um, as a wildlife biologist and she's she's mm-hmm. she was an acclaimed biologist before she um, before she retired and started doing this rehab work with birds um, really feels that in considering the birds that we can learn an awful lot about ourselves and a lot about the natural world and mm-hmm. and you know when I when when we look at this particular summer and you talk about climate change it's it's interesting because right. in, in retrospect uh, the, the the trauma in the story was lived mm-hmm. out this summer in the Pacific Northwest because on yeah. the last few days of June, which was prime nesting season for these birds, we had temperatures that were 107, 108, oh 108 yeah. degrees for for days in a row, and mm-hmm. and we have we live on an acreage, and I'm I pay a lot of attention to nests that are all around where where we live. And mm-hmm. uh, there was a song sparrow nest in a currant bush down near our south woods. And, right. and when this heat wave hit, that mother bird had, uh, it, you know, it was in a sh- little shaded niche inside this currant bush. But the temperature mm-hmm. was 107 degrees. It was, yeah. you know, it was unbelievably hot. It was like a pressing mm-hmm. wild animal, this heat. And in the Pacific yeah. Northwest, we just don't. We just don't get temperatures like that. These were record-breaking, yeah. and especially this time of year because, oh, mm-hmm. I've got some cool stuff to tell you here. Okay, so. Oh, sure. <laughs> so so these birds, I so there were four eggs in this nest when this heat wave hit, and mm-hmm. when I would walk, when I would walk by there, you know, I would skirt the nest, but the mom, the mother bird would leave the nest, but so we tried to avoid it or watch it from afar, right. but um but those passerine eggs can survive up to about 104.7 just for a brief period of time if they're near the end of their hatch cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I was just grieving because I thought all yeah. these nests, all these eggs, all these birds are going to die. And yeah. um, and one thing that I bring out in sugar birds, there's a, there are some real themes of redemption, which we can talk about here, is that there's... Sure. There's survival and healing that we can't imagine that's built into the natural world and mm-hmm. and that we can work with and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll talk more about that. But anyway, of these sure. bir- of these birds, three of them survived. Three wow. ba- three babies hatched out of that. And we were just 
ecstatic. That's great. We were ecstatic because they were in their last few days of, of, of incubation, but, but they hatched and the mother raised them. And so you don't know if, you know, if she positioned that nest for shade, if somehow she, you know, it's almost like somehow she mm-hmm. knew if her body insulated it. We also have a lot of nest boxes around our property yeah. for tree swallows. And the tree swallows arrive in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they arrive early spring. They're one of the earliest birds to set up their nests. And so mm-hmm. all the nests, when they arrived this year, all the nests that had shade were immediately occupied. And wow. the three nests that we have that are uh, farther north on our property, that are either on fence posts or out in the open or whatever, None of the swallows took those nests this year. And we thought, what's going huh. on? Why? And usually they're fighting over these nests. Mm-hmm. But if there had been nests in those boxes, those birds would have died. They would, yeah. they would have cooked. Yeah. And, and in Seattle, there's an old cement plant uh, um, with, a, with a flat roof out there that, um, mm-hmm. that turns use for nesting. Mm-hmm. Do you, I don't, did you hear anything about this? I don't think so. No, this is news to me. Yeah, so so when this heat wave hit, I mean, and this is a tragic story, and, you know, brace yourself for this because it's really okay. a horrifying story. But but, right. uh, but these turns, because this, this roof of this, this mimics a shoreline where these turns like, mm, like to okay. nest. But when it yeah. got hot, those baby turns were jumping off that building to try oh to gosh. escape the heat. And then yeah. they, and then, you know, that, concrete can reach 145 degrees right Mm yeah people who were watching these turns rescued them and you know some of them were were injured or you know or compromised beyond repair but right um, but half of them lived and -hmm. you wouldn't have thought that that was possible they're they're falling off the roof of this building you know and um and so we've got Mm -hmm. you know so it's it's that type of thing but yeah I'm sorry, I'm just going on and on, <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. So we have these, we have these heartbreaking things that are going on in the natural world in, yeah. in response to a climate that is changing and the climate's always been changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always changing, but the change has accelerated and human input right. is, is a causative factor. You know, I can mm-hmm. remember, um, I was raised in the 1950s and 1960s. And yeah. and when I was being raised, I remember a lot of conversation uh, in the public education system about zero population growth and talking to yeah. us even mm-hmm. then about, you know, have don't have more, you know, populations growing and it's going to overwhelm the earth. And there was yeah. a lot of what you talk about for us really terrifying stuff about what was going to happen and I (laughs) Mm -hmm. lived in a town that was a logging and fishing town and I remember these huge old growth trees Mm -hmm. there'd be three or four log trucks come through with one tree on them cut into these I mean they were massive trees yeah yeah you know and so then now what do we have we have um we have forest fires Mm-hmm. In these monoculture forests right. that, that yeah. are damaging so mm-hmm. much of our environment, so we've yeah. got this juxtaposition of we've got this juxtaposition of what seems hopeless, and mm-hmm. yet what offer and and yet what where I believe there's a tremendous amount of hope opportunity. 
right um because we can we can adjust our uh forest practices to help minimize some of that stuff i mean and i'm not an expert yeah. in forest management but but when we look at the big picture it can feel so daunting that we don't even feel like we can take meaningful action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But if we look at things like positioning nest boxes, things like forest management, um, mm-hmm. you know, even even um, going back to management, even during the Dust Bowl days, which as I brought up right. with, my, with my dad. Pretty huge natural disaster, yeah. <laughs> yeah, huge natural or disaster. Unnatural. And it yeah. changed a regional <laughs> climate at that time. Yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. a shift in farming practices, a shift in uh, in tree planting, a massive tree planting campaign mm-hmm. saved the Midwest. And and so yeah. there are things we can do, and there are things that ways that we can contribute to healing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know where we live right now. Uh, with this drought this year, we have we usually have an awful lot of robins nests around here, and we still do have a number of them, and they'll raise up to three nests a year. Sure, but they depend on they depend on um, on worms in prime season. And then once the summer typically gets drier, mm-hmm. then they go to berries and fruit and other types of, you know, other types of, of, of uh, food supply for them. But what's happened in this drought is that the worms have gone deep and then they, they, they do this, mm. they do this thing called, um, uh, I think it's called, uh, estivation where okay. when worms go deep they they wrap themselves in a ball and surround themselves with slime so that they mm-hmm. can weather drought situations but when they're down interesting when they're down in these little mucus lined balls deeper in the, <laughs> deeper in the earth the robins can't get mm-hmm. them and so sure, when, sure. when this heat wave hit this year it affected robins it affected it affected mm-hmm. everything you know and but and then we yeah. also yeah, I mean, I could just go on and on about this stuff because yeah. everything's interconnected. Oh, totally. Yeah, and know uh, that heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest. I've got some friends who live up, um, well, in Portland and then also in Washington State. But yeah, it was crazy. It was just insane temperatures, and it was like after a certain while, I just like had to stop reading the news about it because it was so distressing. You know, like. I'm sure you probably, you know, heard about it too, but like the, um, I think it was like the shellfish off the coast of British Columbia, basically like boiling alive in the ocean, which is just like, you know, insane kind of stuff. So yeah, it can seem pretty terrifying and it can seem pretty hopeless, but, um, I like that you mentioned sort of the, uh, resilience of nature too, because, um, you know, like you were saying, like, this is not, I mean, this time is very different and it's never happened like this before but this is not the first time that like the earth's climate has changed you know nature's adaptive and um it can sort of roll with the punches to some extent so yeah those yeah like the stories about the birds knowing to build their nest in the shade that's just wild you know that's so cool that they yeah that they like seemingly knew how to do that because you know i i don't know if they knew it was going to be really hot or something but um yeah, that's just interesting. It's pretty inspiring to hear stuff like that, actually. Well, you know, it's a huge part of my, well, it is my worldview, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. that we can find love intrinsic in nature's design. And that uh, I, I, 
am a proponent of theistic evolution, which means that God allows adaptation in in Mm -hmm. species uh, as things change and that there's always this overarching care Mm -hmm. in the natural world. And I first realized that when my grandfather... Okay, interesting. Yeah, when my grandfather, who, again, was raised in Alaska, after he said that after mm-hmm. World War II, he said there was so much... Uh, there was a lot of devastation just from, um, from oil spills, from tankers, from d- during, right. during battle yeah. stuff. And so I was just beside myself when the Exxon Valdez broke up in Alaska. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, 250,000 birds were 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 killed plus a lot of other damage to wildlife and to ecosystems and mm. i pretty much thought it was the end of the world you know when that yeah. happened no. and he said to me he said cheryl he said there's that he said it'll heal there's yeah. there's healing built into the natural world mm. so when i and, and that you know that's what god would do you know there's yeah. there's way more <laughs> resilience in the natural world than than we than we imagine. And I think when we think, mm. as I was educated growing up, that it's really all up to us to fix this yeah. rather than being participants in the healing that is intrinsic in the natural world. Mm. You know, um, it's just way, it, for me, it for me, knowing that I'm not alone in this, that there mm. are not only so many, so many people who care, but also that the one who created the Di- the indescribable dynamics of a cell and a DNA strand, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, is the one who is very aware of what's going on and allows us to partner with him. And and my faith mm. calls me not to a cavalier, oh, God will fix this type of attitude, but really sure, a, sure. a responsibility of stewardship that we have mm. okay. to care for the earth and to do what we can. You know, e- even the bugs, you know, <laughs> yeah. how heat, how changes in temperature affect the proliferation of certain species of bugs, which are right foundational mm-hmm. to the whole food chain, right? Oh, yeah, totally. You know, and yet we also have, you know, and in our area, we have a lot of monoculture because we're a farming community. Yep. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are times when you can go outside and you can smell malathion. You can taste mm. it. And, and then, what is that? Well, it's a, you know, it's an insecticide that's used oh, on, okay. on some okay. of these crops. And so you've got drift and there are a lot of tree plantings around these fields to prevent drift. Right. But you still have drift. And we notice a lot fewer bugs than, mm. than we, even, even then 30 years ago when we moved to this spot. And so then that affects bird life and it affects the food. It everything's wow. affected. And right. so to the, everything. Yeah, the extent to which we mm. can get the word out on that and the extent to which we can we can lobby for right. uh, greater controls on some of that stuff, you know. I, I right, have exactly. Yeah, I have a friend. Uh, am I going the direction you want me to on this? <laughs> this is this no this is great i'm yeah very interested in everything you're saying so okay you know we um when we were first married when we were in graduate school my husband and mm-hmm. i were in eastern washington in an area called the palouse and okay we became friends with a number of wheat farmers over there and there's one farmer who was uh pivotal in early um he was pivotal in early no uh no-till farming 
And yes, so where yeah, they where, yeah. where they drill drill seeds and mm-hmm. he on that side of the uh, of the forest and a a biology professor near us who she and her husband are also dairy farmers there are interested in that carbon sequestration you know where you're right, not plowing yeah. where you're not plowing that's a regenerative agriculture yeah right? regenerative yeah, okay. agriculture biodynamic mm-hmm. agriculture and these right. are all that stuff is the, so cool oh it, it is and yeah, it's so interesting yeah and you know there and so we again we're talking about hope and how we can participate in this you mm-hmm. know and and in loving the natural world, in loving creation, you know, we're participating mm-hmm. in the love of God for what he's made. And it's just okay. so great. And so, cool. y- you know, restoring some of these these uh, previously thought dead zones, you, uh, you know, yeah. there are some beautiful stories out of Great Britain about, you know, just small mm. parcels, parcels of land that have become more and more contiguous that have been restored through this type of agriculture. Yeah, and, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's just thrilling because it happens yeah, fast. No, it really is. Yeah, it can happen mm-hmm. fast. It, uh, these friends in the Palouse in eastern in eastern um, Washington, with this no with this no till agriculture, have been able to create soil mm-hmm. uh, water water retention in the soil. Like they'll plant these daikon radishes that have um, right. roots that extend six feet. You know that affect the ground six feet down on this deep, beautiful topsoil. And then in the winter Mm -hmm. when they freeze, the roots disintegrate, the water reaches down. And so where previously there was eroding topsoil, they have have restored water sources in there to such an extent that they can grow dryland corn. They can can grow sunflowers in this area that... Nobody thought could grow those crops. Wow! Just by That's so cool. just by management. So it's working with what's there mm-hmm. in this healing land, and it's thrilling. Yeah, no, that's so cool. Um, yeah, that um, you said something earlier. I'm. It's like um, you know, you were saying like when you were growing up, you were taught like kind of like control things, you know, like population growth. That's like a thing that people love to kind of talk about sometimes, and it's very much like a control. Um, you know, approach to doing that, but you said um, instead of doing that, um, like controlling, you are more interested in participating with nature, and I thought that was just great. So, is are these all examples of what you would consider like participating with? I guess um, restoring uh, nature, or absolutely I don't know, am I taking that wrong. Okay, absolutely. See, I think uh, you know, and I have no interest in getting political here at all. But I think that anytime that's okay if we do. <laughs> okay. But I think that anytime anytime people are forced to take mm-hmm. action and their hearts aren't in it, uh yeah. it, it's not going to be as effective as when people are given information and given help, whether that's holy help right. or help from you know, or help from different groups. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then develop this commitment to the joyful restoration and care of this unbelievable mm-hmm. world we have. And so, yeah, yeah. So I'm not a big advocate of control, you know. And, yeah, me and neither. <laughs> I, I'd rather be a participant in in love and in um, mm. in helping other people to see that. So, and so, yeah, and so these, great. you know, so these girls, um, when they, you know, talking about, talking about the book, you'll just see a lot of, you'll just see a lot right. of this in different facets in the story without, you know, and you mm-hmm. can draw your own conclusions when you read the story about, 
mm-hmm. whether nat- whether nature in the story is an antagonist or whether it's okay, you know or whether it's a help because it's it's both and mm-hmm. it can be both you know there there's right. there's hardship i mean we're in a broken place you know the creation's groaning yeah. and uh and yet the groans don't have to be the whole story yeah exactly interesting no um i think this is great because it reminds me um of two things that are related um one there is a writer that i really like who writes about climate change named uh marianne Anise heglar and then there is um, another author that i interviewed not too long ago she's a canadian science fiction writer uh, named uh, nina Montianu. and they both talk a lot about how um I might be getting this kind of wrong, but loosely paraphrasing, like how love is like the solution to the climate crisis. And, you know, at first people hear that and they're like, okay, that's just a load of like hippie stuff, you know, but, um, but what you're talking about is, I mean, to me, it sounds like exactly the same thing that they talk about, which is um, like, uh, you know, like you were saying, like um, loving the natural world, I think you said is uh, another way to love God or, or something similar to that. I might've gotten that wrong. Um, so yeah, I just think that's, that's so interesting, um, because, I mean, we always talk about this in such scientific terms, but really it does come down to, like, care and participating with nature, and, like, nature is, like, another character in your book, it's just like you would, you know, engage with another, you know, like, neighbor in your society, I guess, you know, being a good neighbor to it, so... I might be going off on a tangent here, but (laughs) yeah, that's just something great that I thought you were saying. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful gift. And, and for me, I I mean, if I were, if I were put in a box someplace and I didn't have a chance to interact with the natural world, I'd just shrivel up. You know, it's so, so (laughs) it's so, yeah, so it's so nourishing. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and so here we have this sweet gift and, my purpose, I, I believe, is to, is to love God and love others. And I'm loving others if I'm caring for mm-hmm. the environment that surrounds right. them. I, um, when I went to university, I, I went to a religious college. Uh, it's Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, it was previously, I think, Baptist-affiliated, but now it doesn't have any kind of official affiliation. But I had a... Um, religion professor when I was there who still teaches there named uh, Dr. David Dark. Um, he's written some books. He write, actually writes for Pitchfork magazine sometimes, which is the music magazine. He's brilliant, but um, he always likes to say there are so many ways to love God. Um, and it's exactly like the same kind of spirit of what you're just talking about, it sounds like, um, whether that's like caring for the environment or anything that kind of has like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like thinking about like every action that I do, how can I make it so that it's showing love to others or love to God, you know, in that way. Um, so I just thought that was a really kind of profound thing that he used to say all the time. And it sounds like you're kind of echoing it and what you're saying to me. So I think that's awesome, but yeah. Absolutely. And you know, when we operate out of, if we operate out of fear, we're never going to be as effective as when we operate out of love. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty scary out there. Right. It's yeah. pretty scary. There are some pre- there there <laughs> yeah, are things. It is. Yeah. Well, and they'd be frightening even if we thought that we single handedly could solve the problem. But we single handedly can't solve the problem. You know, we need yeah. to, we need yeah. to be part of something bigger. And mm-hmm. uh, I yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. <laughs> 
Awesome. Yeah. No, Dr. Dark is awesome. I could talk about him for a long time. So I'll have to send you a link to his stuff if you're yeah, interested I, after I we like finish to. this discussion. But let me tell you another story about, about healing and about, about um, I believe, theistic evolution. Okay. God, mm-hmm. okay. God directed adaptation. These hornets mm-hmm. destroy honeybee nests and they've been seen uh right. they've been seen on these european paper wasp nests that they have you know deep, you know t- taking out those larvae as well and nobody worries mm-hmm. about them taking out those other wasp nests but they're after honeybees <laughs> they they deca- yeah. they decapitate honeybees and with the industries that we have oh around gosh. here bees are a really big deal and pollination yeah. of course so mm-hmm. in J- in japan they have films of of an invading of an invading um, giant Asian hornet, gi- giant mm-hmm. Asian hornet invading a honeybee hive, and of these honeybees clustering around this hornet and raising the temperature. This you know mm-hmm. uh, around this hornet because honeybees can survive at a higher temperature than this hornet can, and they kill it with heat. Wow! Now, how cool is that? Is that just wow. the, that's just the best. Yeah. yeah. And so you, that's if you amazing. ever get a chance, look it up and watch that film and you just go, yeah, you know, yeah, that's nothing, yeah, that's, that's nothing so cool. people did. Yeah. So great. No, that's so cool. Yeah. That's also just like a, a perfect kind of metaphor for collective action too. Yeah. Oh, um, it is. Yeah. 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 I'm going to make a note of that. That's uh, something I definitely want to see. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, Honey. it's really fabulous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My note says honeybees killing murder hornets. <laughs> yeah. There you go. You know, one, one other illustration about art. I just get so jazzed about this. I'm sorry I interrupted. <laughs> but, uh, no, no, go ahead. but yeah, go ahead. Uh, so in this drought, you know, we have, we have hundreds of trees on our property and, and, uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you just, you watch what's, what happens with these trees. And, you mm-hmm. know, in Los Angeles, there's a, um, there's a place, there's a nature garden that's through, uh, I was reading this article through the uh, Natural uh, History Museum in L.A. County, mm-hmm. but, but they, they have these horns set up, and they're actually kind of microphones that are set up by these trees so that you can, mm-hmm. you can hear um, the cavitate, they call it cavitation, when the, the, mm-hmm. the moisture flow through, as trees, as trees suck up moisture from the ground, Right. The moisture flows through the xylem of the trees into mm-hmm. and yeah. and feeds the rest of the tree, mm-hmm. um, or waters the rest of the tree, gives the rest of the tree its its uh, its water supply, sustenance. Yeah, yeah, sustenance. But but when um, when it's too dry and the pressure becomes too great, there's a process called um, cavitation that introduces. Okay. Uh, air bubbles into this cavitation and you can hear it so it's like the the trees actually uh-huh. the trees actually groan when they're thirsty and wow, it's a so interesting yeah it's a you know it's a they call it the acoustic signature of mm-hmm. of of drought you know in these in these trees wow. and it's ultrasonic so you can't hear it with the you know with just the naked ear if you want to call it that mm-hmm. but sure. but they're but but you can hear it, you know, you can put instruments up against it. You can hear this. And, uh, and so I think for us to tune our ears to the natural world, to hear what's happening in ways that we don't have to wait until 
we're dealing with a Sahara Desert wasteland, you know. Right. Before yeah. before we can intercede and get get water on the mm-hmm. trees, water the trees. Yeah. Yeah, they're literally asking you to water them. It sounds like. <laughs> um, wow. No, that's that's also great. Um, I was gonna say. Um, going back to something you said just a little bit earlier um, when we were talking about birds, um, the characters in uh, your novel, um, you mentioned that um, one of the characters, Burnaby, um, he'll actually like arrange the bones and paint them to sort of like resurrect the birds. Um, I just thought that was so fascinating. I, I recently did an interview with a uh, New Zealand author um, who writes science fiction and uh, her name is Octavia Cade, and she wrote a great um, novella that I was talking about uh, with her and my friend Lovis from Scotland, but it's called uh, The Impossible Resurrection of Grief, and it's a very similar kind of concept, or at least, um, you know, this this thing from your book reminded me of it. Um, in the face of, like, you know, mass extinction, so many different species going extinct, there are these people who have sprung up in the short story or excuse me, novella who are basically trying to like resurrect animals by making kind of like a simulacra of them. So some people will make like robots that look like animals and some people will have like strange kind of like um, avant-garde art projects that are, you know, like resurrecting them or something. And it's just something that they kind of get fixated with. Um, and in her story, it kind of drives them insane. Um, and it's just like this sickness that people catch sort of. Um, so I was wondering if maybe would you share a little bit more about that from your novel about, I guess, the quote unquote resurrection that Burnaby is doing with birds? Wow, I want to read that. (laughs) It's so good. No, after I read it, I was like, everyone needs to read this book. And I don't say that about every book I read. So yeah, I'll, um, I'll send you the the link to get it or whatever after we finish talking. <laughs> it's really really good. Well, I think it's really it's really accurate. You know, human beings are capable of some pretty amazing things, and you know, even technologically capable of creating a or or building a prototype of a cell. But the imputation of life is something mm-hmm. that no human being can do. Life is from God, and it comes right. to us from outside of ourselves. So for us to try to mm. resurrect life ourselves is impossible. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, we can dance around the edges all we want, but you can't make something live that's not alive. And so in the story, Burnaby, who has been, you know... It's never it's never overtly mentioned in the story, but he okay. he he was raised. He I mean it's shown in the story, but he mm-hmm. was raised by his dad to recognize what we've been talking about here in the natural right. world. And you know those kids, you know through their mother's mental illness, they're isolated. You know their dad mm-hmm. does church in the kitchen with them. You know and they're, okay. they're you know and and uh, but but you never really hear Burnaby's worldview or how he's inculcated that or not Mm, but in trying to rebuild these animals all he ends up with are skeletons and paintings you know Mm. and yet in the process 
for him as he's there's one scene where he's describing to Celia the 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 flight of a peregrine in a stoop mm-hmm. you know in one of its dives and he's talking right. about the musculature of this peregrine and the and the calculation that that bird does anticipating gravity and anticipating mm. you know all of the dynamics that allow that bird to land exactly on its prey yeah. you know in the exercise it can be that in the exercise of attempted resurrection or of attempted restoration of the the world or our attempted participation that yeah. we that we we either despair or we find a hope that's way beyond us and it seems mm-hmm. like there's no middle ground because you can't be yeah. you can't be you know um ambivalent about <laughs> it's yeah, one it's yeah. one or the it's one or the other mm-hmm. i guess it's kind of like that uncanny valley sort of thing where I don't know. That's like a, a thing that comes up in science fiction movies a lot, I guess. Like, or even in like um, robotics too. Like, I don't know if you've seen the. I forget her name now. I think it's Samantha or something like that. She's kind of like a um, a robot that some company built, and she looks like a person. She's supposed to look like an android, I guess, but she's so creepy to look at <laughs> because it's just like something is just slightly off. I mean. If you look closely, it's pretty obvious that she's a robot, but um, it's like, yeah, and I think it happened too in um, Blade Runner. Uh, it's like there are, like, you know, there's androids in that. I forget now what they um, are called in that, but um, yeah, it's just there's something slightly off. You can just tell there's something kind of like unnerving or creepy about them not being quite human. They're like an imitation of it, sort of. So yeah, that's that's interesting that that kind of comes up here when talking about restoration because... You know, if you take more of like a, I, mean, I guess like a control perspective versus a participant perspective, you might kind of run into that, I guess. Well, and isn't it interesting that, um, you know, the, the older I get, the more it seems that people either want to imitate God or surrender to God. And in the imitation, it seems like there's a mm-hmm. whole bunch to do with control in the surrender, there's a release of control and a freedom that you can't kind of can't get any other way. It, it, this has been my experience, and of course, mm-hmm. with profound respect for okay. whatever your listener's perspective is. But but when you look at the natural mm-hmm. world, if we if we try to think that we in our own strength can control nature or can control the yeah. the, the weather. Uh, I'd much rather be a participant than try to take that on all myself. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It just made me think of that with uh, the, um, you know, piecing together skeletons, essentially. So, yeah, that's uh, with uh, Burnaby piecing together the skeletons and, you know, with the paint and stuff. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And the guy's brilliant. I mean, he, you mm-hmm. know, he's, as you see later in the story, you know, he does some things that are pretty remarkable, but, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so I guess just shifting gears a little bit, um, I wanted to also talk about, um, I guess, anger. That seems to be kind of like a, a common theme in the book, especially with the two girls, um, Aggie and Celia. Um, they're both angry at their parents, though, for different reasons. Um, and that did make me think of the youth climate movement. Um, you know, I one example of this, there. I mean, there are so many different activists and protesters who uh, seem to be kind of angry at, like... Um, who they call like the adults, like older people, I guess, who have, you know, 
they're you know like previous generations were the ones who like caused the climate crisis and you know by and large like they've also failed to address it in any kind of meaningful way so i mean for example like greta thunberg uh not too long ago she told like a group of climate protesters that now like young people have to kind of step up and be the adults in the room because the real adults aren't actually doing it so i I don't know i was just thinking about that with relation to these two girls being angry at the adults in their life as well uh, was that something that ever crossed your mind when you're writing the book or interested to hear your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think anger, anger is interesting um, because yeah. I, I don't I don't think human beings do anger well. Um, anger, there's one there's one scene in the story where the grandmother Mender um, says to Celia, she says, anger points you at false targets, Celia. Mm. And I think what anger does is it 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 points us at pe- often at people rather than at the problem, mm-hmm. and um, the reality. It, well, I, I think I think about when I when I became a parent, and you know, and I had some tough stuff happen to me when I was growing up, and right. and and so then I became a parent, and I think. I'm going to do it differently. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do that. You know, I think everyone says, that. yeah, yeah. But, uh-huh. but the reality is, is that we, we, when we, when we go to a different perspective and we arrive at that different perspective, we're still human beings with our broken mm-hmm. human nature. And these girls are mad at the uh, prior generation for, Right. For their failings, because their parents have, you know, um, Aggie's mother, you know, she's got her, her illness issues and she's done some stuff to Aggie that, uh, you know, she's failed her daughter. Um, right. C- Celia's dad has failed and, and and mother have failed her. And and yet every one of us is going to fail people. We're all going to fail each yeah. other. So <laughs> so where do we want to expend our energies? Do we want to expend mm-hmm. our energies in in, in working toward healing or in working toward um, toward toward venge, vengeful behavior. And Celia chooses right. vengeful behavior. You know, so mm. in terms of being the adults in the room, although I think that's a really good statement because there are motivations mm. in some of the leadership. Uh, both sides, you know, apolitically a- a- here, mm. but you get, you get uh, big organizations, big power, whether that's, you know, governmental or whether it's, you know, in the corporate world or whatever, where personal, uh, mm-hmm. personal goals, personal aspirations or, or whatever end up, end up causing an awful mm-hmm. lot of, awful lot of harm and an awful lot of hurt. And so children yeah. with their fresher perspective and sometimes undamaged love for what they mm-hmm. see, maybe they can make their way through the mess more easily and be a voice for, yeah. for healing and change. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Anger is something that actually I feel like I've started um, talking about more recently as it relates to climate change. Um, just because I, um, I I know you said earlier, Justin, when you were talking that um, human beings don't do anger well. And that um, you're saying Minder said that uh, anger points us at the wrong target. Um, and I, anger is like one of those controversial things, I guess, or I guess it's kind of like divides some people. But um, I definitely 
can see situations I feel like it's very easy to see situations where anger is a very destructive thing um but there is also a part of me that thinks that if you can channel it properly it can be a good thing in some situations not in every situation and I don't know I think that there are a lot of um kind of constraints or parameters to that but I don't know like I do think there are maybe sometimes where it's more like um Maybe like righteous indignation is a word that comes to mind. Um, I don't know if that is making any sense at all, but. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah. That, that's really well said for us because, uh, you know, then it becomes kind of a matter of a matter of definition. But I think for us to be yeah. for, for us to be for us to be riled and motivated to make change, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, uh, is more powerful if we can shed the if we can shed the condemnation or the, you know, because that's wasted effort. It's not going to, it's not going to get us anywhere, you know? Uh, So, Mm -hmm. and we're, and we're in a world where, you know, when I was growing up, there were 1.6 billion people on, on the planet. Yeah. There's a lot more than that now. (laughs) And now what are we headed toward? 8 billion. And so it's 8 billion. Yeah. So if you go to a County fair and everybody is there crowding around the, you know, the, the fairgrounds. When those crowds leave, the grounds are a wreck, right? But they, yeah. But they, mm-hmm. yeah so just by mere population pressure and human mm-hmm. nature, you know, the, uh, greedy factions, people who, are, who don't care about other people or whatever, mm-hmm. we're going to have this damage. But you're not going to change those people. You're not going to change them. We've got to we've got to focus yeah. with with love and energy and discipline and forethought on doing what we can do. Mm-hmm. And so, don't not to waste our efforts yeah. on on being angry. That's good. So, I also wanted to talk about hope. Um, I read recently in an interview you did with Dead Darlings. Uh, you had this great quote where you said, um, because hope is foundational to my worldview and because I have personally endured trauma and emerged with resilience and a greater capacity for joy, I trusted my characters could too. I knew their pain wouldn't be their whole story. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that, especially the part about hope being foundational to your worldview. I know we've kind of talked about hope a little bit um, throughout our discussion so far, but yeah, what does that mean to you when you said that? Well, I believe that uh, I, I believe that uh, I believe in happy endings, and yeah. I've 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 I don't say that I don't say that lightly because um, you know growing up I endured some trauma that nobody should have you know that would take some people down and yet yeah, yeah. and yet uh, most people have endured some hard stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I believe that there's a God that loves us and that I'm operating out of a place of belovedness. I also believe that he has a plan mm-hmm. for his created world that, mm-hmm. uh, that absolutely doesn't mean abdication of responsibility on our part. But it, sure. it does mean that he has the final word. And, mm-hmm. and so in the story, you know, when you see a mass of... <laughs> of gooey yolk and egg white turn into a bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what can't he do? And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's that whole thought too, that let's, let's talk to him about it. Let's, 
ask him how we can participate. And, and I think there's mm. a lot we can do. And I, I can't see far enough. I mean, I, I can't see far enough into the future to see how that's going to happen. But I believe mm-hmm. there's going to be healing because I think that is the, that's the, he has the final say and he's a God of healing. He's a God of life mm-hmm. and, okay. of, and of love. And so that dry, that coming from a place of profound despair as a child into this mm-hmm. into this place that's it's not Peter Pan hope I'm not a Pollyanna <laughs> I, I, right, I have right. I have wide, my eyes are wide open about all the garbage mm-hmm. that's out there and going on both in people and to people and to the natural world yeah but overarching it all is my trust that God has got this he's got it mm-hmm. and um, and he's also patient in ways that I can't grasp. And that's okay. Yeah. I don't have to know everything, and I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Neither none of us. Kind of like the the surrendering you were talking about yeah. earlier, I guess. Yeah. 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 Mm. That's great. Um, yeah, and I guess in my life or the way that I kind of see it, um, I I don't know. People have so many different ways of talking about hope. This is something that comes up a lot, and I guess the climate discussion. Um, you know, you have people saying like, "Oh, like, you know, ask." I will like read articles from scientists all the time and they say like people always ask me like do you have hope or something and you know some people will say like you're asking the wrong question but then some people will say like I have something better than hope like I have data that tells me like what I need to do you know to make you know this better Uh, which I guess just like the biggest one would be stop burning fossil fuels. But um, I mean I, I, I hear that and I think that there are valid points in that too. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I always think of hope as a verb and I guess it's, it's kind of similar to like what you were saying, I guess, like, um, it's not like a Pollyanna ish version of hope. Like your eyes are wide open to everything that's going on. Um, and you're kind of like trusting, I guess, in the process or whatever you're trusting in, whether that's, you know, God or science or whatever, um, to me, I don't know. I like to think about it like that, like hope is action. Um, it's doing. And I like to always tell people, like, for me, like, the best kind of remedy for um, what a lot of people now are calling, like, climate grief or just, you know, sadness about, like, the general state of the world is uh, doing something about it and trying to get involved. Um, and, yeah, I, th- I thought this would kind of tie in nicely with our discussion as well. Um, part of me, I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this on the podcast before, but, um, for me, like part of this, I guess, kind of idea about hope that I have is, uh, comes from like my upbringing, uh, in the church. Uh, I would always hear, you know, like faith without works is dead, um, which comes from James, uh, chapter two in the new Testament. So, um, I won't like read the whole passage, but, um, you know, it says like, Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And it says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So I guess that's kind of where it comes into that for me. And I don't know. I, I know that you we've talked a lot about um, like how God plays into this and how your, your faith especially um, impacts your uh, thought process around this topic. I was wondering if you had any kind of um, reaction to that passage from Scripture, and I don't know, curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, faith without works is dead, um, I believe, emerges from the fact that faith fills us 
with a hope that propels us to action. It isn't an attempt, mm, okay. you know, so, so absolutely that when we, when we have faith that, that uh, when I have faith that God is in, in control here mm-hmm. and that he will show me the next thing to do, then mm-hmm. I, if, for me not to act would be a faithless act. Okay, interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. You know, and, and dovetailing that with what you talked about with grief, that doesn't mean that that we're not... I, I carry grief with me about what's happening right. in the world. I carry that. Yeah. But it's but it's kind of in, in this juxtaposition with hope. The, gr- the grief mm-hmm. is ever-present. It's, like, it's almost like I'm holding this bird of grief, and I say, oh, <laughs> sure. you're here. Here you are again. Okay, let's go. You know, because, mm-hmm. because if we weren't grieving it, we wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't even have a heart, right? This stuff is awful, right, yeah. awful that's going mm-hmm. on. And yet, um, I, I'm friends with a, with a chemist who, um, who discovered his faith through quantum physics, you know, so when somebody, oh, you know, so, so when, um, when you, when you talk about, I, I have science, Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that it has to be either or. I love science, okay. and I have found yeah. science to be eminently faith strengthening for me. As yeah. as have <laughs> the family and friends and colleagues that I have have around me. But mm. you know, but but in coming back to that passage from James, you know, yes, our faith will inspire us to act, and whether mm. we're called to be acting on behalf of of um, you know, human conditions or, or mm-hmm. conditions in the natural world or caring for the creation or what, wherever else we're called, we're going to be doing something mm-hmm. because we can't. We can't not do it because it's in us. Right. It's nothing that's forced mm-hmm. or controlled, <laughs> you know, where, right. where, it's, where, it's, a, where <laughs> yeah. it's a should. It's not a should. It becomes a want to. The, the, works, okay, be, the works become a want to. And that also kind of ties back into what I was, I guess, doing a very bad job of explaining earlier, which is the writers that I mentioned who said, like, love is the answer to the climate crisis. I, if you said it much better than what I was trying to get at. But yeah, it's it. Um, I guess like loving it is what like kind of compels you to want to do something about it. And um, yeah, so people will say all the time, you know, like we have to um, learn how to like mourn what we're losing while also cherishing what we still have to save. And I think that's such a great way to frame the problem and to, um, I guess, frame the response that we should have to that. So, yeah, I, I just think that's awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really what that's really well said for us. You know, we don't have foxes mm-hmm. here anymore. You know, the coyotes, oh, have, the, the coyotes have, have usurped them. And there's some other there's some <laughs> other birds that we that we that we don't have, you know, and you have these these rugged, tougher species, but these delicate, beautiful species that, uh, you know, you miss them. I I miss mm-hmm. them. You know, I grew up seeing I grew up seeing silver foxes on the Olymp- on the Olympic Peninsula, and um, we don't see them anymore. And so mm-hmm. I so I yeah. Oh, so but but part of that too is just to be in a place of to be fully present, to be fully present with right. with the the bedfellows of sorrow, you know, sorrow and grief on one side Mm -hmm. of the bed and then, you know, and, and hope and possibility on the other. And that's going to look, that's going to look different for each of us, but, um, Mm -hmm. but we need them both. 
Um, wow, we've covered a lot of ground in our discussion so far. I think it's been great. Um, I won't keep you for too much longer. So I was just going to ask in closing, do you have any final thoughts you wanted to share or if you wanted to, you know, mention places where people can find a copy of Sugar Birds, uh, if you want to take this time to do any of that. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sugar Birds is, is out everywhere now. It's in ebook, paper, paper, uh, paper and audio. And mm-hmm. um, the audiobook is narrated by the amazing Jane Entwistle, who's got four pages of books on on oh, wow. uh, Audible. <laughs> and she's an award-winning mm-hmm. narrator and did a great job. Cool. But I hope that readers will enter the natural world with these characters and the book will just capture them and that, mm-hmm. and that uh, yeah, that you love it. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can reach me at CherylBostrom.com and there's a contact mm-hmm. page on my website there. And I blog weekly and I'm on all social media stuff. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think we can leave it at that. Um, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a really great pleasure getting to talk to you. And yeah, everybody should go read Sugar Birds. (laughs) Thank you, Forrest. Good to meet you. Stories for Earth is written and produced by me, Forrest Brown. The music you heard in this episode is also by me. If you want to support further production of the show, consider becoming a member on Patreon at patreon.com slash stories for earth. You can find us on the web at storiesforearth.com, and we're also on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>